Let's take our Bibles at this time and turn to Psalm 71. Read the entire psalm and we'll focus on verse 16 in light of the entire psalm. Psalm 71, the word of God. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness and cause me to escape. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be my strong refuge to which I may resort continually. You've given the commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the hand of the unrighteous and cruel man. For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my trust from my youth. By you I have been upheld from birth. You are he who took me out of my mother's womb. My praise shall be continually of you. I have become as a wonder to many, but you are my strong refuge. Let my mouth be filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. For my enemies speak against me. and Those who lie in wait for my life take counsel together, saying, God has forsaken him. Pursue and take him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. Let them be confounded and consumed who are adversaries of my life. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually, and I will praise you yet more and more. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and your salvation all the day, for I do not know their limits. I will go in the strength of the Lord God, I will make mention of your righteousness, of yours only. O God, you've taught me from my youth, and to this day I declare your wondrous works. Now also when I am old and gray-headed, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to everyone who is to come. Also your righteousness, O God, is very high. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have shown me great and severe troubles shall revive me again and bring me up again from the depths of the earth. You shall increase my greatness and comfort me on every side. Also with the lute I will praise you and your faithfulness, O my God. To you I will sing with the harp, O Holy One of Israel. My lips shall greatly rejoice when I sing to you and my soul which you have redeemed my tongue also shall talk of your righteousness all the day long. For they are confounded, for they are brought to shame who seek my hurt. Thus far we read Psalm 71, God's word, Jesus' song, our song. And now we want to hear one verse of this song in the light of the whole of the stanzas of Psalm 71. Verse 16, I will go in the strength of the Lord God and especially this, I will make mention of your righteousness, of yours only. Now, the psalmist here speaks, and he's rather anonymous. There's no word given to him or of him. There's no title. The psalmist is unknown. It's always good when God says things, and when he, say, when he refrains from saying things, though, and so... We take advantage of this silence about the, the principal author of the psalm, human author, 
and make it ours. And that's the calling. This is our psalm. This is God's word meant for us and for all time. But now there does come a question here. And the question is, how can we sing this song if we're not that man who sang it and if we're not old like he is? Because that's an outstanding feature of this psalm. And commentators have commented on that. The psalmist speaks of one who is hoping that God would not cast of off in the time of old age and when strength fails, verse 9. And then he says, Now also when I'm old and gray-headed, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to everyone who is to come. Now he's old and gray-headed. That's verse 18. And then the question is, how can we make this our song if we're not yet old? And if those of us who are getting old uh, live in constant denial like yours truly, then how can it be that this psalm is for us? But, beloved, of course it is. Because here is a goal that we have in this psalm of what it is to be a godly, gray-headed old man and a gray-headed, godly old woman. A goal which to reach is to use the means of grace and which is to begin to be as godly as this old man is in faith and in courage and in strength of faith and in praise so that God would honor the efforts we put in to be those men who are mature in the Lord. We seek to emulate this godly old man that we might one day, if we go old, if we grow old, be as old and as godly as this man. What is outstanding about our text is something that's outstanding, really, about the entire psalm. This man, in his old age, confesses something called the righteousness of God. Note the times that it is said here that there's this righteousness which draws the attention of the old man. Verse 2, deliver me in your righteousness and cause me to escape. Verse 15, my mouth shall tell of your righteousness and your salvation all the day. Verse 19, also your righteousness, O God, is very high. You have done great things. Verse 24, my tongue also shall talk of your righteousness all the day long. And then our text, I will make mention of your righteousness of yours only. So righteousness is on the mind of this old man. Isn't that something? Something that he's... He's craving to speak to the entire generation to come, his grandchildren maybe, his great-grandchildren. Something that he says, I just have to talk about. And it's something so divine and so saving to me and so thrilling, this subject of the righteousness of God. Let me, let me talk to you about that. Come and you sit on my knee, little child or grandchild. Let me, let me talk to you about that. Well, beloved, may God the Father call us to come and sit on his knee and hear of the righteousness of old and young, the singular righteousness of heaven that redeems souls and makes his sons and daughters of God, a righteousness even of Christ. So let's consider an old man's old confession, a gospel confession really, but there's something also about this man, and he says it here in this psalm in different ways. He's an old and educated man. He's an educated man. I want to see what that education is all about. And then finally, he's the one who says these things and says them for these things that there might be godly old paths in which he walks. 
So gospel confession of an old man and then of an old and educated man and then for old paths, the paths of righteousness of the people of God of which Jeremiah speaks. Righteousness, your righteousness. The old man speaks of the ancient of days, the Lord. In you, O Lord, Jehovah, I put my trust. This Lord is God. O God, you have taught me from my youth, the creator, and the God who's righteous. There is something here that I rarely do in defining terms, and I always mark off catechism students when they do this. I'm going to use a term that has the term or part of the term righteousness in it to define righteousness. Righteousness is simply the rightness of God. There it is. The fact that he is upright in himself, that he's good. We thought of the term and expounded the term of the holiness of God, something that was so evident when the whole mountain shake and shook and there was thundering and lightning and the people were shaken in their boots at Mount Sinai. Holiness, speaking of the otherness of God and the sinlessness of God. But here, righteousness. It's very similar to holiness, but it has to do with how he shows himself holy in his dealings with men and with all creatures in all of history. God, you see, makes history to be his story. He makes creation to be his creation. And he gives so-called laws in the heavens and laws on earth for rational moral creatures so that they might live according to his will. And his righteousness is the description the Bible gives of God dealing rightly by himself and what he's revealed with the creature. So that, for example, when a creature disobeys God and God, who in his righteousness won't allow that, he punishes that one who disobeys God. He's holy and he's upright in upholding himself and his commandments. When God also saves his people, this is an aspect of his righteousness because his righteousness is his word, Jesus Christ. And so God has spoken the word, I'm with you. I'm the Savior, I'm the Redeemer. This is the word that the psalmist is dwelling on here. And the psalmist is going to hold God to it. And he knows he can hold God to that word of salvation because God has spoken the right word, I love you, I will save you, and now he's going to make that good. And nothing will separate the psalmist and those who trust in him from the God who is the God of his word because he's righteous. He won't do wrong by himself. He won't contradict himself. He said it. He's gonna, it's going to happen. He promised it's going to happen. When there's judgment, it's going to happen. When there's a threat of judgment, it's going to happen because God will not deny himself in his condemning the sinner. So when he shows his grace and mercy. Now the psalmist here extols the righteousness of God. Verse 19, also your righteousness, O God, is very high, and he's reflecting upon what God has done righteously. You've done great things. And then he says, oh God, oh God, who is like you, like Isaiah the prophet, 
There's no other God besides this God. And righteousness is one thing that, that delineates or that, that spells out just how great God is and how he is truly holy not only in the heavens but on earth in dealing with the sons and daughters of men, with the stars in their courses, with the good things and the bad, with Satan and his minions and with God's elect and the church of Christ. The psalmist in, or the psalmist, the, the, the singers in Israel in Exodus 15 and verse 11 might be being recalled by the psalmist here when they sang at the shore of the Red Sea, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. There was something there of the holiness and righteousness of God that was revealed at the Red Sea, and they'd sing about it. It was a song of Israel all along, song of the uprightness of God, righteous and merciful, doing right by his people, doing right by the wicked, and, and caring for the things that have to do with the glory of God. This made this people, as the psalmist here, an Israelite indeed, very special. Because... There's none righteous, no, not one. And since the day that Adam and Eve fell, that's been the case. And unrighteousness, there's none righteous, no, not one, means you don't say God is right. You say the exact opposite. God is full of wrongness, to coin a term, a bad one. He's not right. He's too confining. His righteousness is like a straitjacket. That's what Satan said to Eve, and Eve bought it. The righteousness of man doesn't compare to God because it's a great big fake substitute for the righteousness of God. If everybody, if anyone in the earth is still seeking to do something good and to claim that they are doing something good for society, for themselves, for their families... It is, if they be still in Adam, a wrong thing, not a right thing. And when people are claiming their rights not to be body shamed or other shamed or, or shamed because of their wanting a pronoun they when they're only one person, they say, well, that's wrong of you. I have my space, I have my identity, and whatever it is, because it's me, it's right, and I'm right. And this thing called Christianity that actually is a thing that has to do with saving from sin and, and this terrible thing that Christians call sin, but then saving from sin to obey a God who is above us and we cannot see. We don't want that. And when this thing called Christianity says there's only one righteousness and that's what God requires, demands, and gives, they say there's no way. There's, no, there's many ways to whatever you call heaven. There's many ways of being right, and we should all get together, and the churches should all get together and declare the righteousness of man. That's what Babel was all about. And they, at the beginning, said, no, we're not going to obey God. We're not going to spread into all the world and shout God's praises. They said, we're going to stop right here and build this thing this ziggurat or whatever it was, this tower, all the way to heaven to make a name for man so that he is seen as the right 
the rightest creature in all the world. The psalmist declares the righteousness of God, which is very high. He would make mention of Jehovah's righteousness and of his only. And this we know, he says, in a context where he's speaking of the righteousness of God, but of a context where by that righteousness he was delivered. That's the greatest thing to this psalmist. That's why he's singing of it. He's not just saying, I learned in theology today, where I learned it a long time ago, and I was taught this from knee high to a grasshopper, mama's knee, that there's this righteousness of God, there's this right thing, thing for spirit, whatever called God. Oh no, this psalmist knew this personally, that this God who is righteous showed all his godness, manifested all his godness, his power, his divinity, his greatness, his grace, in saving him. That's why he calls the God who is the God, who has this righteousness, a God in whom I put my trust. Very first word, I trust this God. And that's why he prays with confidence, let me never be put to shame, deliver me in your righteousness. You've delivered me once, I know you'll deliver me again because what you do stands And the word you speak stands. And so he's concerned and he's confident that God will deliver him out of the hand of the wicked, verse 4, out of the hand of the unrighteous and the cruel man. Because God is going to show off just how right he is, even on the backdrop of people he allows to be, permits to be, wills to be in his sovereignty, unrighteous. He confesses this, and this, beloved, is a confession of Jesus. We saw that this morning. Revelation of God on the Mount Sinai leads, was to lead Israel to another mountain, and to another Moses, even Messiah, even as we've been led in light of the New Testament with all the definitiveness of the gospel of these latter days. So here, everywhere a psalmist speaks of righteousness, he's talking about Jehovah, our righteousness, who is Jesus. Think of this in Jeremiah 23 and verse 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper, speaking of Messiah, and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness, Jehovah Tzithkenu. The Lord our righteousness. So there's this one who's coming who will make it be so that God is truly righteous and saving unrighteous people. How can that be? By a great Messiah who is God and is man and who satisfies all the requirements of being right with God by obeying the law, takes the punishment of you and me on himself, and all our sins are taken away. And the psalmist is looking ahead to that. Never forget that, beloved, when you're reading your Bibles. Leaders of the homes, 
and in you individuals be led of God to Jesus, for the truth is in him. Or we just have a kind of theology, we just have a kind of theory and a construct, and we have no power. There is no reality unless we find Jesus Christ. And God be praised, we find him because he's found us. The psalmist will make mention of the righteousness of God, of the Messiah of God, and of God's Messiah only. He will be a preacher of the cross. He will be a herald of the king. He will be a prophet, a spokesman of God, of God that all, of all that God would ever say and how he would reveal himself to be right, holy and right in all of history and how he would deliver such a people that they might be on the right side of history, graced to be delivered. And so it's ever been. The church has always spoken of the righteousness of God, justification by faith alone. Jesus was always concerned to come, not to call righteous people in themselves who would boast in their righteousness, but sinners to repentance. And he commends for the attention of Pharisees, every one of us by nature, the publican in the temple, in the very corner of the temple, beating his breast and crying out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, this publican. And meanwhile, the Pharisee's praying to himself, but this man, this sinner who knew it and who pleaded the righteousness that had to be a gift if it was ever going to be his, he went down justified rather than the Pharisee. This is the Pauline doctrine. Therefore, being justified by faith, being one who speaks of the righteousness of God as now his, is something received by faith and by faith alone. This is the Augustinian doctrine of Augustine who pleaded the depravity of man and against Pelagius. This is the Reformational doctrine. This is our doctrine. It's the doctrine of the prophets who says, don't boast in your filthy rags. Your righteousnesses are just filthy rags. You see, this is all about the right God who's, who's given the right man, Jesus Christ. The God-man and Redeemer. And this is the old gospel. And this is why he makes mention of this. And he makes mention of this first. Now, do we do this? If we would do this when we're old, some of us are already old, we may not lie, we will appreciate the fact that we've been educated for this. Now, there's thieves on the cross and people born out of due time and they're saved later on in life, but this man is a covenant man and he's had Jehovah as his trust from his youth, verse 5. By Jehovah, he'd been upheld from birth and 
His praise was continually with God when he was a little boy. God fulfills his promise to us and our children and saves as such as he's ordained to salvation from our own loins. That's Old Testament and New Testament. That's before Pentecost and after Pentecost. That's the promised salvation, and that's the the salvation that's fulfilled uh, in Jesus Christ. He's taught from his youth the word of God. That's the first thing. How does the psalmist have something to say when he's older? Has he been reading the paper? Has he been dabbling in the internet and finding a story here and there and has something to say to the grandkids? Has he just some maudlin stories to rehearse to his heirs? Some fish story or two or ten that's made up and then exaggerated over the years and kind of a fun thing. Oh, we know Grandpa, he's just talking about that. Or does he have really something to say that God has said? I give you my son. He is made unto you by faith, wisdom, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. And I give that son in you, and impute his righteousness to you, and impart his righteousness to you, so you could talk about it. You have something to say when you grow old. That's your legacy. Thank God for grandpas like that. You have a father like that? Friends, I never did. In the last five years of his life when he was by us, that came out. Oh, we'd talk about things we did. The Appalachian Trail we hiked. The different things. And he was a good dad in many ways. But he didn't make mention of the righteousness of God. And there's millions and millions of people like that with a kind of good about them. He's faithful to his bride of 60-some years, coach of my little league team, fellow hiker. He loved me. There's something that he didn't have. Something to say the righteousness of God. And you see, he wasn't schooled that way. Oh, he kind of was. He was a Methodist, and I wax uh, maudlin myself. And his dad went to the Bible studies, and his mom did, and she was born again on the back, back of a horse in Tennessee. This is what I heard over and over again, but not dad. There was something there that they weren't taught of God and certainly not taught by the church or taught at home. Something of the particularity of the righteousness of God, that that singularness of God's righteousness that doesn't compare to Mahatma Gandhi or, or whoever else is a good person and a good humanist. You see, we need something from heaven. We're just here on earth. And then we go to hell. 
We need Jehovah's righteousness. And you're taught wonder of wonders in your homes and you ladies and you men who are growing up and now you're marrying age and so on. You've been taught and you'd be grateful for that. Mom and dad taught you. Been taught in the church, so important that homeschoolers also be schooled in the church. The home is not the church. The church is the church. Full of homes and full of happy individuals, but we're a home all together, all of the families here, and we're glad for that. That's why we talk with one another as those who develop relationships and who understand one another, who share each other's burdens and and each other's joys, and we pray for one another. We work out our differences, and we're one family in the Lord. Homeschool, church school, education it is, which is theological and Christological and full of grace and full of the truth against the lie, and important it is that we remember this. And then this one had a school of hard knocks. Verse 20, you who have shown me great and severe troubles, the psalmist says to God, shall revive me again. He's not complaining, by the way, that God had shown him great and severe troubles. It's part of the education. And a wise old man who looks back sees this, doesn't grow old and go grumpy and say, look how terrible it was. My days have been few and evil, Jacob. No, He's someone who discerns in the hard things in the bends of life. That is a good thing that I had to go around that bend, had to break off that friendship, had to stop that habit. That's a good thing even that I had this sickness and this disease. Even though at the time it seemed so much beyond me to bear it. But it was not God beyond God to bear it. And then there's the persecutions that come when you live a godly life. Verse 4, deliver me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the hand of the unrighteous and cruel men. And verse 10, for my enemies speak against me, for those, and they, those who lie in wait for my life take counsel together. They say God has forsaken him. Pursue and take him, for there's none to deliver him. Sounds an awful lot like they were saying of Jesus. You see, this whole education... When you say that, old men, old women, young men, young women, middle age, it's an education in dependence. See, when we get old, the hearing goes, the teeth go, the smell goes, the muscles go, the aches begin, the limitations are so evident, and we can hardly walk sometimes or all we do well is stumble. And God in old age, really, is giving a picture of what he's been trying to teach us all along. Trust in me alone. And not in your props, not in your strength, not in your biceps, not in who you know, not in the money you have, not in your great reservoir of good works, Open your cupboards and finally see, dear one, God's saying, they're bare. Look on your shelves and you'll finally see, won't you? There's no trophies there. 
learn the lesson. Nothing merits with God. God is our righteousness. Christ, of course, is the example. And I believe there's certainly messianic overtones and undertones throughout this this, um, psalm here, this psalm full of praise and full of problems. He speaks of himself as being taunted by the, the wicked who say God has forsaken him. Now let's get him. Well, isn't that what they said of Jesus? He trusted in God that he would deliver him. Let him deliver himself. Come down off that cross, Jesus. They thought he was the sinner. They thought he was the wicked man of all the wicked men and the blasphemer who came as a, an imposter of Messiah. So Christ is our example of how he took it and how, though he didn't get old, he was faithful to the end. Cut off in the middle of his youth, he relied on God. And how he had to endure something far worse than people just saying God has forsaken him. Beloved, he was forsaken. It was true. And when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken Everything flipped on its side, on its back, topsy-turvy, upside down. Here is the culmination of the foolishness of the gospel. This son, perfect, righteous son, is now a scapegoat, forsaken for unrighteous people. But there, beloved, is the beauty of the cross and the beauty of grace. And that's the third thing, the third way that we're those who are schooled, schooled by the words that we learn from home and church, Christ our example, and then grace itself. It's a great teacher. It leads to my final point, but the great teacher grace is taught in chapter 2 of Titus. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works, Titus 2, 11 through 14. So you have... Human teachers of the covenant of grace, you have Christ himself teaching by word and example, and you have the power of piety, grace itself, the free favor of God, making the justified ones to be sanctified. And that's exactly where our text leads us and leads us to conclude in Psalm 71. When the beginning of it in verse 16 says, I will go in the strength of the Lord God. I will make mention of the righteousness of God and of his only. And I'm going to live as a righteous person, going in the strength of God. So here you come to the twofold truth of justification and sanctification. The Reformers always had to fight against the Roman Catholics who said, if you say you don't merit anything with God and you're saved by grace alone, no merit whatsoever, 
You're going to create a bunch of people in your congregations who just, they preach grace and they live like a devil. Because if grace is grace and you're saved just by grace and you can't do anything to merit anything and there's, no, there's no, nothing you have to do to get out of even purgatory, well then, the human nature is we're just going to take advantage of that. I have the best of the church world on Sunday and I have the best of my world the rest of the week. But God says differently because this is a God thing, you know, the gospel, righteousness. And God will be righteous in getting your salvation done to the uttermost by declaring you innocent, by the free grace of God and the imputation of the righteousness of Christ and then making you holy. We are chosen before the foundation of the world, Paul says in Ephesians, that we should be holy. Well, here it is. I will be in the strength of the Lord God. I, who make mention of the righteousness of God. I, who am right before God, because this righteousness of God is now somehow mine, because I've been delivered. That is, it's imputed to me, and I've been delivered. And now... I'm going somewhere, not to the bars, not to the bijou, showing I'm an old man, not to the internet, not to the gaming site, not to spend and fritter my time away as if, oh, when I get old, I get to do whatever I want, and that's something that's preposterous. Never was there a man in the Bible who's said to have retired. I'm just going to say that now. From service to God. But he would go in the strength of the Lord God. That means I'm going to be holy. And the text reads literally, I'll go in the strengths of the Lord God. Reminds us of the multiplication of almighty strength for us. And Paul can say, I, I will do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now we know what it's about. On this earth, there's nothing impossible for you to do that you're meant to do. Nothing. No temptation can overtake you, but that you're powerless to escape it. No temptation. Believe that. Don't believe the devil. And when the devil says, oh, surely God has forsaken him, or maybe he speaks to you personally, he says, he's forsaken you, because look what you did again and again. And you're, you're pulling one over the the, the, the ears and the eyes of the pastor, but not me, says the devil. And he says that. You're bold to say, huh. devil, shut up, but just one word for you. Jesus, my righteousness. And Jesus, my strength. Jesus, in his Holy Spirit, now, my Lord, Now my liberty. And the psalmist here bears this fruit then. The fruit of an old and God-fearing man, of one who would go in old paths. Jeremiah speaks of them. Jeremiah 6, I think. Old paths. Ask for the old paths. Wherein is the good way. Not the new paths. Of innovative Christianity. Of innovative righteousness of something that 
hides the problem of sin and doesn't make mention of the righteousness of God needed to, to get rid of the sin. Here's a psalmist. He will go in the strength of the Lord God, and front and center in the text is witnessing. He will confess God. He will confess him to the next generation. That's what he's so concerned about. And as you grow older, men and women, make sure you have that next generation in mind. And it's not about leaving for them an estate, any great amount of money. Yes, there's something to that that shows that you care for them. But the most important thing you care for is that they have had in you an example of somebody whose righteousness was Jehovah's and who confessed him and who pressed on to the end. We would be a church that thrives in old age. We're only 10 years old or something. Wouldn't we be the same way? We would preach the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, and we'd be happy. This man is a happy man, after all. He's happy because even though he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, he's confident God shall revive him again and bring him up again from the depths of the earth. Sounds like Jesus again, doesn't it? And he's happy then because God increases his greatness and comforts him at every sign. And he says, where's the loot? Son, where's the loot? I can hardly see it, but I know how to play it. I will praise God. Daughter, where's the, the tambourine? Where's the piano? Where's my voice? I can't find it anymore, but let's sing together, shall we not? God is God. God is great and greatly to be praised. And from morning to Setting sun, let's praise him together. Oh, so hard, isn't it? Growing old is hard. Dealing with troubles when you're weak is very, very hard. I know something of that. We all know something of that. It's never the case, though, that nobody knows the trouble I've seen because we're part of the body. We all suffer together. We suffer losses together. We encourage one another. And we grow old gracefully together. This is all about preservation, the preservation of an old man. It's all about maybe a David who was betrayed by Absalom, his son, who was a man pleaser, sat at the gate and said, hey, you're taken care of well? Oh, no, not really. David doesn't do a great job. But he said, I can take care of you better. I can be a better king than David. And he, and he tried to take the kingdom from him. And this is maybe a psalm of Ahithophel then conspiring with Absalom to take over David. And it's, it's terrible to have these betrayers in the midst of your friends and so on. And there's Satan everywhere, you know. Speaking of another way, speaking of this especially, the great evil of the righteousness, the truth of the righteousness of God, it's this, self-righteousness. This self-defense, this self-citadel, this defying anyone to challenge me, this defying God to challenge me. The nature of the beast within but the nature of the God above is you'll have none of it and it'll make it so in your life you'll have none of that. You can see a, a fake a mile away, can't you? A fake. If you just have eyes to see. And 
You can see your own fake righteousness a mile away, can't you? That's why we repent. When you grow old, beloved, God willing, you'll grow old if the Lord doesn't tarry. Grow great in God. And if the devil accuses you, ah, you've been forsaken of God, remember, Christ is your righteousness. And nothing and no one will ever separate you from his love and his righteousness. Go in peace. In the righteousness of God, amen. We pray, Lord, that you would bless in the word that we declare and hear be for our righteousness in you, our trusting in you, our complete self-abandonment that we might declare you and your glory. May it be for a life, Lord, that's happy and holy at the same time, a life of those educated at the foot of Jesus learned in the school of prayer, learned in the school of difficulties, which you always teach us, lead us to the paths of righteousness and the things that matter. Lord, bless us in whatever age we are, whatever context we are, with whomever we are. May we praise your name continually and tell it to the generation following. May this congregation be blessed, your sovereign grace be a herald, and be those who live by the truth of a wonderful justification by faith alone in Christ alone, and a life to follow that shows it. Amen.